This is an interesting one. This is an episode by Brandon and Braga and Manny Cotto. Although, from what I understand, what happened was B&B put forth the story outline, and then Cotto actually wrote the episode, which I can, I can buy that. Also directed by David Livingston, which shows, as per usual, he tends to be excellent. There's three plots running through this one, and they do a pretty good job of this. All three plots actually interweave pretty well. I've spoken against the A-plot, B-plot format many times, but it's always been because of how it's executed, not the format itself. The It depends entirely on what you do with it. Having the plots, you know, have something to do with each other, either thematically or literally in terms of the events of the, ser- of the episode, helps a lot when it comes to the A-plot, B-plot format. And similarly, if you have them completely divested from each other, but it's done in order to change up the pacing, this is the high plot, this is the low plot, that could work too. We've seen this in Deep Space Nine and other shows, I'm sure, I'm, I'm messing, but DS9 probably did the A-plot, B-plot dichotomy the best of the series so far. Here we have A-plot, B-plot, C-plot. I'm going to go through these roughly in order. Uh, first of all, we have the T'Pol Tucker romance plot. The... Actually, before I go into that, I want to mention, I get it, but the last time on Star Trek Enterprise actually irritates me a bit because it straight up gives away all of the plot elements of this episode. It's really obvious it's going to be about the spheres, and there's going to be whoever built them, maybe some kind of sphere builders or something like that, and then it's going to be about Paul and Tucker because they show that stuff, and then it's going to be about the Hayes and uh, Reed conflict, which, by the way, if you're paying attention, only showed up once before now in the scenes that are shown in the uh, the lead-up thing. So, well, I understand this, and I've talked about this many times. You know, we talked about this over in Babylon 5, for example. It still irritates me, especially given how blatant it is. At least it's skippable. So this leads to Tucker and Cole, and he's trying to give her neuropressure, and then she gives him a kiss, and then she leaves. <sighs> On the one hand, that comes out of nowhere, which always kind of irritates me a little bit. On the other hand, I I can't believe I'm saying this, but if they had done something with this, this might have actually been an interesting take. Now, I wouldn't have done it with Tucker. I I don't think that's a good pick, even though it it is necessary for the thing with T'Pol. But my point is, I would have Cole crushing on Tucker, but Tucker not reciprocating, because Tucker is, for lack of a better way to put it, taken. He is emotionally and mentally taken, and so even though there's nothing actually there, he can't bring himself to stray, right? So that's how I would have gone with this, having him kind of shut her down. And then we lead into the rumor mill, which is why T'Pol gets distracted and bothered by this whole thing. For example, there's this bit where Cole slaps Tucker in the ass. Okay, sure, that's fine, that's whatever. But I would have T'Pol be like, (gasps) and I would have Tucker be like, like that just kind of slightly disapproving, hey, don't do that. Just a little bit, just to show that he's not into it. But of course, Paul doesn't recognize that, so she is thinks that it is, and you get how this would still be restructured, and that would work a little bit better. But I mentioned another idea that might work as well. Maybe do something about, I don't know how to phrase this, uh, random hookups. <sighs> the problem is I don't see a point in it. I know that sounds so terrible, other than just trying to flesh things out a little bit to make things, you know, a little bit more believable, but I don't see any narrative point in having this kind of random hookup. Now, it's a very human thing to do. 
These people are probably on a suicide mission out in deep space. They are in very close quarters to each other. They are, you know, high-end specimens of their particular species on both sides of the equation. So you kind of see how it would be easy for some of these people to just randomly start to hook up with each other. E2 technically t discusses this, but you, know, you get my point, right? And so maybe have Cole and insert other person here just kind of decide that they want to have sex. And that's fine. And have everyone be like, oh, see you together again? No. I mean, you know, I, I spend the, the occasional evening in, in their quarters, but that's kind of it. Oh. And maybe kind of have, I guess that's the closest thing to a point you could do. Try to make it so that even though everyone else assumes there's something a little bit more real there, there isn't. And have it kind of be the arc throughout the episode that people kind of get to the point where they accept that that's fine. You know, safe, sane, consensual, all three are applied, so what's the problem? Right? That's the best I got. Instead, we have this coal thing, which doesn't really go anywhere, but is instead entirely a uh, uh, catalyst, couldn't think of the word, for the T'Pol thing. T'Pol is, of course, very distracted and noticeably cold throughout most of the episode. Again, credit to Blaylock. And she just comes across as very stone-faced. This leads to uh, Tucker being noticeably defensive and actually having to justify some of his stuff. He noticeably does this with Reed later on. Gets very, you know, prickly and defensive about it. This then leads to, uh, not Tucker, to Paul giving the, uh, the neuropressure to Cole. I'm amazed she agreed to that, but it was probably literally for medical reasons at that point, since there's probably something, like, speaking as someone who has actually had professional training as a masseuse and has decades of experience as a masseuse, allow me to say that the places where the nerves are tightest, that's where you are the most careful, because it is so easy to screw that up, especially with the kind of pressure you're usually applying. So, yeah, no, it makes perfect sense that they would need to actually fix whatever's wrong here. Sure. And then Cole starts talking about Tucker, and I like her line, what's not to like? This, again, reminds me of what I mentioned earlier, the idea that, I mean, what's not to like? He is an attractive person who is a nice guy, who's a gentleman, and they have similarities and blah, 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 right? There's an actual possibility there. Now, there isn't really, because Tucker is taken, but you get my point, right? Plus, he has nice arms. Ow! <laughs> this then leads to the scene between Tucker and Paul. Now, hmm, this is 98% of an excellent scene. And then 2% rolling my eyes because it's stupid. I know, I know. I have that anti-romance reputation. Allow me to be clear, that's not what I'm on about. Let me explain. First of all, these two actors, uh, uh, Trenier and Blaylock, have just phenomenal chemistry together. I know I've said that before, but I cannot stop gushing about it. These two actors can absolutely play off each other brilliantly. The dialogue in this scene also pops. It's kind of simple, but it's simple in the same way that a poem is simple. You see the pattern repeat as they're going through the dialogue, and it's very clever the way to it. It's not a direct mirror. Instead, each of them kind of talks to and around each other, and you can, you can almost see the dialogue weaving as they go back and forth through what is effectively the same three lines of dialogue in different sequences to imply different things. 
she is very, very cold and contained here. But when he starts to open up a little bit about this, it starts to be something that allows her to recognize this. He, of course, knows her well enough. Remember, they've been getting to know each other since season one. That he can recognize that she's kind of clamming up. Her tone is different. So, okay. So then he decides to try to, you know, okay, whatever. But then she admits, oh, hang on, you you are attracted to me. I didn't say anything about that. No, your clone did. Oh, Okay, and that clearly bothers him. Now there's an emotional wedge there, so he kind of tries to dance around that, leading to her reflecting the exact same things that he was just reflecting to her on him in different order, so that he then realizes, okay, yeah, fine. And he decides, now this is the key point right here. He decides to open up in the same manner she did. I suppose the key point is when she did. She reveals what Sim said to her. That's important because she made the first move. She decided to be honest about something. Now, I know that sounds like such a dumb thing, but be real for a second. And you do not have to give examples in the comments. But feel free to nod or shake your head or whatever in real life as you're listening to this. Because how many of you, when you're in a serious conversation with a family member or a child or you know a sibling or a close friend or a lover or boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever, have you had a moment where you haven't really been completely honest with them because of emotional tension. Because hmm? you're afraid of what they'll say, because you're afraid of what they'll think, because you're not sure how they're going to react. I imagine all of you know what that feels like, to some extent or another, especially when it comes to romantic affairs. And so that first step, that first, well, I mean, you maybe I like you. And she doesn't say it that way, of course. It's far more complex than that. But, you know, she admits to him what Sim said to her. That's the first opening up. That is why he then allows himself to open up. So he admits, yeah, okay, fine. I'm, I'm jealous of myself. Whatever. And the two of them kind of mutually admit without ever saying it that the two of them like like each other. Now, it's implied to be mostly physical, but only within the confines of the individual scene. She obviously values him. She's to Paul. She doesn't just want him for his body. And he already has stated that he likes her in a more deep mental and emotional thing, thus closer to an actual relationship than the aforementioned hookup I was referencing. What then happens is she decides to kiss him. All of this is brilliant. The two, again, the two actors play beautifully off of each other. The dialogue works and flows beautifully in, in between it. It's all very human, very relatable, and it's a natural consequence of something that's been building for almost two years at this point. Praise. How do they screw it up? Well, then they decide to show the nude shot. Now, I know, you're just going to say, Laura, you're a prude. And sure, like if, if, you want to, if you want to accuse me of such a thing, you are welcome to do so. I think it has no place here, is kind of my point. I think there's no reason to do it other than titillation for the sake of making the show sexier. And I'm right, by the way. That is why they put it in. This is, after all, a script that Berman worked on. But my point is, if they had chopped it off at the kiss, nothing is lost. There's no, you know, detriment to that. And showing the unnecessary nudity doesn't add anything because it's only a couple seconds long. We see her from the back, she descends for a kiss, and then it cuts off. So literally the only thing they did was showed her disrobing and then cut to black. As opposed to kiss, cut to black. You see my point? Now granted, I'm approaching this from kind of a, a more cold and clinical perspective, but that's kind of my point. I am here trying to analyze and discuss how and why I think things don't work. My personal preferences don't really have much to do with this one. 
if you if you want to do sensual, which involves nudity usually when it comes to this kind of a thing, do it. Do it and do it properly. There are ways to do that. There are ways to portray that without actually violating, you know, protocols or, or rules of what can go on television. There are ways to show, um, you know, the, the blanket covering or the bared back or the interwoven arms or the hair tossing up against each other. And that way you still get your titillation, but it also is shown to be, for lack of a better way to put it, something approaching actual art as opposed to, hey, look, there's a hot chick. And you see my point for why I don't think this fits here? They just threw it in because they wanted it to be sexy. And they didn't do it right, so it's not sexy. It's just there. Embrace it or cut it. One of the two, guys. Towards the end of the episode, this leads to another excellent scene between the two as they're sitting there. And at first, Paul seems completely detached. If you pay attention, what's happening is T'Pol has no idea how to deal with this. It's brilliant the way she shows it. Because what she does is she clams up. And she lets him awkward, you know, kind of be like, you know, hesitant, shy, oh god, what do I do, kind of a thing. While she just is the stone wall, which she can do because she's used to that. But if you pay attention to her facial expressions and her tone, she similarly has no idea how to deal with this. So she decides to approach it distantly as it was an experiment. Something that was done, oh, God, I'm not elaborate. I, I didn't I didn't mean any offense. And she jumps just a little bit too quickly to comfort him, because obviously this wasn't just an experiment. It's just she's trying to deal with this in what manner she can, right? And so there's kind of that, yes, let's, let's keep this between ourselves. And then there's this wonderful bit where he's like, we can keep doing the neuropressure, right? And she just looks at him like, like almost eager is how I would describe that. God, I love Blaylock in this show. Anyways, let's move on to B-plot. Or I guess... No, yeah, this this is probably the C-plot, actually. Hayes and Reed. Now, they established that all the way back in... Oh God, I don't even remember. It was the beginning of season three somewhere. It was episode one or two. I forget which. And um, that, that's the... Unlike the Tucker and T'Pol thing, which has been simmering in the background, usually having individual scenes here and there for quite some time, this comes effectively out of nowhere. I'm still okay with it, though, because they do a good job of showcasing it. The Makos are apparently much better trained than Starfleet and have more advanced technology. That's interesting. It's almost like the military got the high-end grade gear. Hmm. Interesting. So, we have some bickering between them. You know, there's some aggravation. There's some very, very blatant dick measuring. Hayes when they're doing their training, tries to make actual notes about what they're doing and why. Uh, as, in other words, he tries to actually train them rather than just saying, no, you did bad, or yes, you did good. He explains what they did well and what they did badly to try and actually teach them. So that's good. Uh, and the practice, and it, well, so this then leads to the bit where they do the shot thing, and Reed goes up and he gets like a couple of shots, and then Hayes goes up and does much better. Can I just pause for a second and say that I would love it if this was kind of how the Makos were presented? They're not. I've been paying attention. I've actually been specifically paying attention for this reason. But the problem is the Makos are just Starfleet personnel in different uniforms. At least that's how they're shown in the actual action sequences. Picture this for a moment. You've got Starfleet personnel here, and they're, they're, and they're shooting back and forth. And then the Mako comes up. 
examines the situation, repositions, takes the gun out, and and just shoots all the targets, bam, 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 like that. You know, actually hitting the targets instead of having the needless firefight going back and forth thing that we've had since Season 7 of TNG. That would have been interesting, first of all, more interesting to, than what we have, but also be more engaging as an action sequence, you know, better choreography, better directing, better, uh, I guess, storyboarding is the word I use for that. And it would help distinguish the Makos from the rest, because they're actually trained in ground combat, because that's their thing. Starfleet is trained in space combat. Now, obviously, there's going to be some crossover, and that's fine, but come on, show the distinction. Anyways, so instead, they get to the scene where they're like, yeah, okay, how many of you are good at something? I imagine all of you can say yes to this. It just depends on what the thing is. How many of you would be bothered if you were being shown up in that thing by someone who's better at it than you? Definitely raising my hand on that one. It's easy to see why Reed is so bothered by all this. He says it's because you're gunning for your, his job. No, he's not. And Reed knows that. Instead, it just bugs the crap out of him that he has been the security guy for so long. Remember, he's the one who pushed for the shooting drill so they would they'd be a better aim. He's the one who invented tactical alert. He's been the military arm of this ship for over two years now, approaching three years at this point. All of a sudden, this other dude shows up who has none of his experience and none of his standing and is just better. Of course it bothers him. This leads to the big scene. So they beat the hell out of each other. It's a shame this is edited to hell and back. Because even with the overly edited action sequence, I thought I was watching an MCU movie for just a second, it feels like, or, or a Jason Bourne film, that's a better example, it feels like this is closer to an actual fight. Oh, no offense, but I mean, this is Star Trek. You know, usually it's the... And then... You know, you know all the, the typical fight moves they always use, right? Instead, this actually looks like a fight with actual fighting moves and actual attacks and flings and all that fun stuff. And they just clobber each other. Now, it's awesome. It's well done. Remember, cross-service rivalry is a very big thing. And don't tell me it's not going to be in Trek. I mean, hell, there's hints of that small, but present even in the future stuff across, like, Divisions, for example, or Starfleet Intelligence versus Starfleet Military and blah, blah, blah. So the idea of the Marines being against the Navy and vice versa makes total sense. This is this is such a long-standing thing. Then, and this is where this works for me, tactical alert is declared. The second it happens, both of them immediately drop the fight and get back to work, because of course they do. Then they work together, they defeat the thing, and then they get the absolute riot act read to them. I'll give Bacula this. He yells well, <laughs> at least here. So they get the riot act read to them, and they're like, okay, okay. But what I love most is there's a scene that is extremely military. No, really. I have actually talked to people who, at the time, were either immediately in or, or excuse me, in or immediately had just left the mil military service. You know, I had half of my family. And they all praised the hell out of this scene, because this is extremely military. Settle it right now. Reed and Hayes look at each other, look back. It's settled. Bam. Just like that. Because that's right. That's pretty much exactly how that works. And I love how they present that. Which I suppose brings us to the A-plot. So, anyone else think that this section of space looks kind of fluidic? 
I'm sure that's unintentional, and I'm just going to go ahead and spoil this. There's not a hint of the Undine in any of Enterprise, so that's nothing. But it just kind of got me thinking, because we know it's spatially warped and twisted. We actually see that when the thing goes straight in and then immediately jumps up at a massive angle. And that probably should have happened to Enterprise when it was engulfed by it, but, you know, let's, who's, who wants actually consistency in our visual effects? And they just stare at it. Well, we've been engulfed by an, 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 a, a spatial anomaly. I guess that's just kind of a Tuesday at that point, isn't it? Anyways. So the hole doesn't break and doesn't rip apart. Instead, they manage to get out. Cool. But the alien, well, he's falling apart. They talk about there was a planet, an inhabited planet in that space. Now, spoilers, this dude's a bad guy. Uh, we could call him a sphere builder. I like calling him a Tutarian a little bit better. I think that works. So the Tutarian here, he... um. <laughs> He's a member of this species who are obviously trying to push these things in order to change the nature of space so that they are more amenable to him and his species. We know all this just from this episode, so none of this is spoilers. But if you're paying attention, while they have exposited on the spheres earlier, uh, as far back as Anomaly, actually, and we've learned more and more about them and their presence in The Expanse, and The Expanse itself has been exposited on since Season 2 with The Expanse, this is the very first time we see one of the Tutarians. Interesting. And informative, if I might be so bold. Saving these bad guys, because they are bad guys, for this far into the story, it was a very interesting choice and the kind of thing that's harder to pull off than you'd think. I think they do a good job, personally. They don't know that, of course, but, well, let me bring up a little factoid for you to really emphasize what kind of people these are. There was an inhabited planet in the space that is now contained by the area that the spheres are generating. It's no longer inhabited. Consider what this thing does. Consider how horrific and slow their deaths were. I mean, obviously they're trying to destroy Earth, but you get my point. It's just such a non-thing to them, because they're horrifically evil. Anyways, we find out that he is falling apart. This is also when we get the, you know, I must do what I have to thing. we got to get that theme in there. They do a better job of it here because they try to force him to stay awake so they can interrogate him, which means effectively forcing him to be alive while he's dying slowly and horribly. Interestingly enough, this might have actually doomed them, if not for the fact that they managed to stop him from destroying the warp core. Question. Do you think he was primarily sent to test the waters to see how the new space is working, or do you think he was primarily sent to sabotage the Enterprise? Both are feasible. I tend to think the former, personally. And when An Enterprise happened to cross him and, you know, got the distress signal, it was, it, basically, it was fishing. They didn't expect Enterprise to get it, and they didn't know it was going to work. But it did, so then they got him on board, and now they're using it to their advantage. But their primary goal, regardless of whether Enterprise responds or not, was to test how well the space was doing. Obviously, not super well, at least outside of that blob of fluidic bleh. He um, mentions this story about being a test subject and a prisoner. I almost wonder why they didn't keep going with that idea. I mean, I kind of get it. There's no So, let's rewind a second here. There's nothing wrong with having bad guys in your story, really. There's nothing wrong with acceptable targets or uh, gray on black, as it's sometimes referred to as. You know, having a truly horrific evil as something that can serve as a backdrop here to all the other villainy and villains throughout your setting can be a very good thing. 
and it can be good for contrast. It can be there's a lot of storytelling you can do with a race or a group or an organization or a person who is just straight up evil, no nuance, no gray. They're bad, and that's fine. And I don't mind that. And I don't dismiss that. I just wanted to mention that because the the Tetarians are very clearly that they are evil. They are bad guys. There's no nuance here. Don't look for any. These are not the Zindi who have multiple species who vary on how reasonable they are and have differing ideas and concepts about. No, no. These are the bad guys. Acceptable targets, like I said. Stormtroopers, Nazis, ra uh, raiders, bandits, zombies. Same concept. These are acceptable targets, so it's totally cool that they die. It does make me wonder, though. That was an obvious deliberate choice, but it would be interesting to see if there were some Tutarians who didn't agree with all this. I mean, the one we meet in STO is pretty cool, right? When the Zindi destroy Earth, my people will prevail. What's funny is he, he just had to get that last little taunt in there, didn't he? He actually gives away far too much information, given the fact that he didn't have to give away any of it. I don't know. Maybe they just had to twirl their mustaches a little bit. Oh, and I just, before I forget to mention this, uh, he was played by the excellent Thomas Copage, who does, I, sorry, I was looking at my pronunciation guide there, who has actually a long-standing Trek uh, guest star. He's done a lot of stuff in the past, and he's pretty good. And as usual, one of the recurring guest stars does a good job, and I just wanted to mention that. So, things are getting serious, right? Well, I kind of forgot the next episode existed. So I'm not sure if the next episode is filler or not. We'll see as we go through it. I do hope you will be there with me, and we will find out together uh, next time.